The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Clean Coders podcast. This week, I'm talking to Sandro Mancuso. Sandro, how are things in London? Yeah, all good here. Lockdown again. So I think we're getting used to it. But anyway, <laughs> good to be back in the show. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. And we've been having a really good conversation leading into this. The topic or one of the topics that you mentioned as we were discussing what to talk about was self-managing teams. And I sat down and I thought, uh-huh, yeah. A lot of the companies that I've worked for, that you'd say that and then all of the management folks would just pass that away, right? Mm-hmm. Out on the floor, right? Because there's just... You know, it's this, I guess, trusting and well, then who's responsible for when things go wrong and who's responsible for things going right? And how would you even do that anyway? But then I've also worked, especially in smaller organizations where you don't really have somebody to make sure everything's going right. So you hire people you trust and then you kind of let them self-manage. But yeah, you know, your organization is bigger than kind of the 10-person company I'm imagining this kind of thing, you know, kind of starting out in, right? We don't have time to manage you. We're going to tell you what we need and you're just going to deliver it and we're going to count on everybody doing the right thing. So in, as you get into a larger organization, as you're working with maybe clients or people that aren't as familiar with this structure, how do you, let's start with the structure. How do you set this up so that it works? Right, so, so this, is, this is a fascinating subject. So I'll probably disappoint a lot of people just saying that straight away. I don't believe in just put a bunch, just put a, I don't believe in that idea of just put a bunch of people very smart people together and they will figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. So the, the, the problem that I, because we tried that like, as an organization right. and, and before I, I had my own company, I wanted that. And when I had my company, that's how we started. But the, the problem is that when we have a bunch of people say, yeah, you just go and figure it out. You need, it's not going to happen if you don't provide direction. So you can do that within boundaries. So for example, uh-huh. so, so there is still some leadership that needs to exist. You can say, for example, to that group of very smart people say, okay, folks, we need to achieve this. And those are the boundaries. So for me, a group, a team, let's talk about a team. Uh-huh. When you talk about empowerment, you, we need to define the scope, the boundaries of that empowerment. And that's the same with trust. So for some, from, from the leader to give the, that trust, mm-hmm. the empowerment to the team, that is given within a boundary. You cannot just say, hey, you can now run the company, right? No. So <laughs> within that, that project, within that scope, you have freedom. And, I, and, and I love that, are, to be honest. Hmm. Because, I mean, I want to be empowered, right? But I don't want to be responsible for all of it. So that makes sense, you know, coming the other way. Exactly, because because a lot of people talk about empowerment and that you should be trusted. But what you don't talk about is accountability, right? So if you want to be empowered, you need to be accountable. Yep. 
but, but for that, you cannot just be accountable for everything. We're empowered to do everything because there is also, for some, not all of us have all these skills mm-hmm. uh, to run someone else's company with their money and stuff. So, so for me, that is the first decision is what is the, what is the boundaries that we are giving to that team? And that needs to be extremely clear. So the leadership in a company needs to, to clearly define the boundaries of those teams. So at the same time, you don't want to micromanage. They also need to know that beyond that boundary, they will need to consult upwards. And that boundary is not, this is another thing we learned, is not a hard boundary. That boundary that expands and shrinks over time, depending on what the team is working on. Right. As the team is working on in a stream of work, let's say, that they're becoming more and more comfortable and they get more knowledge of that domain area or, or something like that, or that technology, that boundary of trust, of empowerment, expands mm-hmm. because we feel that they are in control because trust is also bidirectional, right? right. You as a leader need to be willing to give trust, but the people, they need to deserve the trust. They need to do something to deserve that. And that's where the boundaries, they expand and collapse. But as soon as they move to a different domain, a different area that is more critical and is new to them and stuff, we might need to tighten the boundary a bit. Mm-hmm. And what does it mean, tighten the boundary? Before they go crazy and do whatever they want, they should consult and say, hey, we need to make a decision here. Well, let's consult our stakeholder. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I mean by boundary. So this is one answer. And then you need leadership at different levels as well. Even within a team, if you put like five, 10, seven, whatever the ideal team size you prefer, together, not always they will agree. And at some <laughs> point, you know what, guys? Right, we, we heard everyone, but it's been like bloody two hours that we are discussing this and we, we need to move. Yep, yep. So then the leader for me, like you need to have someone that performs that role because that person is also accountable for the performance of the team and the deliverables. Mm-hmm. And then the person can say, look, I heard everyone. We are not reaching... The ideal scenario, we all... Right. Everyone agrees. Everyone agrees. We all raise our, our points. We all yep. agree. Great. That's the big, big, best scenario. And the worst scenario is that we don't agree. And then the guy will say, like, you know what? I heard everyone. So my proposal is we stop this discussion. That's what we're going to do. But we review this decision in two weeks' time in our, in our next iteration. Right. Yep. So we can always review a decision. Then, then we can always move forward. Yep. I like it. So it's... It's interesting because we started off talking about self-managing teams, but yeah, at some level, there has to be somebody kind of calling, making calls. So I think so, but but again, there is that's for me the the difference between hierarchy and structure as well. So for me, this cannot be mixed. The way that I distinguish the two is a hierarchy is when mm-hmm. the team lead or the person playing the product ownership role or, or whatever. They, they are your line manager. Your promotions rely on that person. Your pay rise relies on I gotcha. The, the, so I mean, like, that person is your ceiling, right? So mm-hmm. that, that, for me, I don't like hierarchies, but I, but I think it needs structure. So right. within a project, within a stream of work, there are certain people that perform certain roles and they have certain accountabilities. But they are gotcha. not directly your manager, which means that if the relationship between you and the person playing that leadership role is not working and you are not able to resolve within the two of you or within the teams and retrospectives and stuff, there's always a way to escalate out to your actual line managers and then rejuggle that that relationship. So then you can cue, for example, 
a team leader that is not doing well mm-hmm. because the team is complaining and the team leader is not their line manager. It's just someone right. playing that role in that project. So then you have the, the ability to tackle the problems in the structure, wherever they are, without impacting a formal hierarchy or line management, for example. I gotcha. That makes sense. So going back then to the idea of, hey, there's this line of accountability, right? Where anything inside this circle is, you know, you kind of have full leeway, you know, full freedom to act. But then on those lines, how do you define where those lines go? Because as you said, they contract and and expand, right, to encompass different things. And you mentioned one example where maybe they don't have the expertise to make all of the right decisions, right? And so you constrict their autonomy in that area so that they're checking in periodically until they gain the competency for it to grow back out. Mm-hmm. But are there other areas where you restrict accountability or strict, yes. restrict autonomy? Certainly. So let, let's try to give a few more concrete examples. Let's say that there is, again, I am a service provider, we are consulting, but let's, let's talk about internal teams, right? So because mm-hmm. that's probably the most common scenario for people listening to, to our conversation. So you have a bunch of teams in organizations. They are all permanent employees, and they are normally assigned to a business area or, right. or a domain area or whatever, right? So or a featured stream, whatever. So the autonomy that they have is within that area. So for instance, let's say that just to, to give some examples, but let's say that there is a payments area. Mm-hmm. We are working in a large system. There is a payments area. There is an orders area. There is a client or customer area. So those are different functional areas for bounded context in domain-driven design of the business and the system. So the payment team, for example, within the payment systems, right, and maybe one or, or more, they should they the, the features that are coming there for some onboard a new payment method, uh, mm-hmm. new payment platform or whatever. They should have that autonomy to architect that the way they want. The team itself should be able to have the autonomy to decide who's going to do what among themselves. Mm-hmm. So we should, hey, we need to onboard, I don't know, PayPal or whatever. And you guys decide. So like, let's talk about it. Like, so you guys decide how we're going to architect that, who's going to do what, and right. blah, blah. But if they say, hey, we want to use, we want to migrate from Azure to AWS, that's mm-hmm. not a decision they can make as a team. Right. That impacts the entire architecture of the organization that has cost implications. That so so the whole infrastructure, the production environment is going to change. So so then this is a decision that they don't have autonomy. It's way out of their scope. They will need to to talk to someone else that will be significantly impacted by that. Production right. services, financial people. There's deals to be made and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. If they want to change the the programming language that they choose, some companies will allow. People to use multiple programming languages. Others, others would like to, to, to standardize. So if they chose to standardize across the board, the teams would not have that, that option. Right. Or they might say, within the JVM, you can use whatever. But if you want to go outside the JVM, then we need to right. the same. So that's mm-hmm. what I meant by boundaries. And- right. That makes sense. So, so the things that they have expertise in and which the impact is mostly localized to them, they get to make those decisions. But what decisions that affect other people in the organization or are beyond their expertise or beyond decisions that are made higher up are, are decisions that they have to bump up the chain in order to make those make those decisions. There, there are some decisions that are only local to them that they also need, that is also outside their autonomy. 
So for example, a team that goes back to their product owner, to the business and say, the business comes in and say, hey, we need to support PayPal or Apple Pay moving forward. And the team decide, okay, yeah, great. But for that, we're going to go on a two-year refactoring. Oh, fair. Yeah. So, so that has a massive impact in the business. So they cannot do that yeah. on their own. They cannot decide to, to do any activities that will significantly impact timelines mm-hmm. and costs and stuff. They need to escalate that. They can make a case and say, look, for me to support this new uh, Apple Pay, that is a significant change. So mm-hmm. we will need to, to, to put a more solid foundation before we onboard a new payment method. Right. But that's them uh, pushing up that information, then having a debate. Makes sense. Now, you mentioned that you're a consultancy and some of this happens in permanent teams as well. Is there a difference when you're working with a client as opposed to working with an employer or a long-term stakeholder? So most of my career was in consultancies, and but I also worked as permanent employees for, for many other companies. Mm-hmm. And we work side by side with permanent teams. I feel that there is a significant difference in how we manage projects. So the as a service provider, the way that we look at managing streams of work is far more is far broader, it's far more holistic mm-hmm. than the ones that normally done by the permanent teams. But the more I, uh, we do that, the more I see that that should not be the case. And because we are seeing some of our clients uh, that would like their teams to behave in a similar way mm-hmm. as the service provider. So what 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 are the, some of the, those differences? Most of the, the internal teams, their management, I'm generalizing. I'm not saying there's right. always exceptional. That's data, fair. Right? So I'll just go for the, mm-hmm. the, the thing that I see the most, right? Their self-management is normally within the backlog that is provided by the, the product owner. And they are managing mm-hmm. their iteration. They're managing, okay, we, we are giving some estimates from the top items in the backlog, and we will decide who's going to do what, and we are going to show, do a demo, we are going to uh, show some progress and some mm-hmm. So that is normally the remix of their management. But, right. but this is a very tiny subset of managing a project. So in the permanent teams, all the rest that is important is done by people outside. And this is what normally service providers do themselves. So I'll give you a few examples. Having a view of the, the roadmap and portfolio and key dates. This is something extremely important as a service provider. So you're not only uh-huh. focusing on your iteration one after another. You have your, your goal like months ahead because you are trying to align your services to the goals of the client, to the goals of the right. business. So, so our view needs to be the same view that the client has in terms of portfolio. And then we help them to shape the backlog in the best way possible to actually achieve their real goals and not just getting from the product owner what our next set of user stories. That's one mm-hmm. thing. Another thing, risk management. Risk management is done by us at many different levels. There are many different types of risks and risks are measured in different ways. So mm-hmm. one, one side is there is the likelihood of a risk to become an issue, right? So right. only you have like low, high, or so it's likely to become an issue or possible to become an issue or uh, very, very likely. And there's the severity. So if that becomes an issue, how severe that would be? So, so then you have this matrix that we always have in projects and say like, what are the risks here? And the risks might be things like missing a deadline 
or an integration with another team that we know nothing about, or a stakeholder that, it, that should be part of our meetings and is not, which means that that right. may be unhappy about what we are doing and then cancel the whole thing or whatever, right? So have an impact. So, so we, we put all those risks. And this is pure management. You are managing your work mm-hmm. stream, which is very natural to, to service providers, but completely unnatural to internal teams because they think that this is someone else's responsibility. Right. Yeah. But the, the problem is when you are talking about risks, you make decisions based on the risks. You adjust your backlog according to those risks, and you also adjust your behavior according to those risks. Because you now, mm. now you talking about some of this risk management and having the right stakeholders in the room and having them inform you on some of this stuff, this feels a lot like some of the agile training I've had. Mm-hmm. So is there is there crossover here? There is to a certain degree. I feel that a lot of those things are taught and there is a, a rich literature in the agile and lean world. Mm-hmm. But that that kind of skill, those kind of uh, concerns, let's say, in the Agile and Lean, where they talk about value stream mapping and reducing waste, mainly on the Lean side, and, and Agile delivery management, there's a lot of risk management and stuff like that. Not always that goes all the way to the developers. Normally that mm-hmm. stops for the Agile coaches, product right. owners, Scrum masters, or whatever role that the people more related to the process have. But that management remains with them. The developers, not always, it, when they are aware, they might they might be aware of those things, but they don't apply on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So for example, stakeholders management, check inefi- regularly check, uh, discuss inefficiencies, regularly discuss the health of the, the, the team and the engagement, possible opportunities, understanding how this for example, the role that that team plays, for example, uh, is the team being seen? This is important for the service provider, but again, should be for the, the right. Are we seen as strategic advisors? Are we seen as a team that the business can count on us and they will give us the, the most challenging bits? Or we are just taking the next story? So those things, they need to be regularly checked. So what we mm-hmm. have, for example, we have what we call engagement board. And in this engagement board, it's like a mirror board. Myro, some people say Myro, some people say Miro. But mm-hmm. you have a board where we have all those things, opportunities, inefficiencies, risk management, uh, stakeholder mapping. So what we have all on the same board. And we review that every two weeks as part of our letter. See what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a right. tool. It's not something that we do reactively. No, we actively look at those things and we create mm-hmm. actions based on those things. Right. Right. So that's what I mean by having a more holistic. This is for me right. proper self-management. It's not just uh-huh. betting, managing a bit and leaving all the all the other right. stuff for management to someone else outside. And you said that's a Miro board. Is Miro a tool? It's, uh, it's a tool. So we are using that a lot. It's a great tool. It's, it's an infinite whiteboard full of plugins, and you can put loads of things in there. It's called miro.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people say Miro. Some people say Miro. So I okay. say Miro, but it's a great tool. So we have those engagement boards now and it's available to everyone and we keep managing that and we create options. We look at it and say, so, okay, so are we tackling those risks? So some of the risks can be technical, which means that we need to do something in our backlog. We need to create some tasks to, to mitigate some technology. 
Others, we need to be, you know what? We just need to reach out to this person. We just need to make sure that this person is coming to the demo. Right. See what I mean? So, so, so you have auctions, like you have many different types of auctions to cover all the different types of risks. Right. That makes sense. I'm really kind of, I'd love to actually just sit down with you and have a walkthrough on how you would set that up. Because I can show you, I can show you one of ours. Uh, we have even have a template now. So yeah, I'd be more than happy to, 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 to share. Yeah. Well, this is audio only, but yeah, we may have to just line that up later. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at cleancoderspodcast.com slash Raygun. So it seems like though with with anything that I deal with in software, there are pros and cons, right? To to this kind of setup. So, you know, some things in this are gonna work really well or maybe work really well with certain people or certain kinds of people. And then in other cases, I mean something like this, I could see it kind of going sideways again with certain people or, you know, certain kinds of people. So how do you evaluate that? How how would somebody look at this kind of a setup and go, you know, this sounds like something we ought to try out. Or maybe they're going to, you know, you're going to say, well, if you're doing this, don't do it, right? And then they're going to go, oh, that's us, hands off, right? Hmm. So again, I think that there is there is an aspect of leadership as well. So so for example, you set an expectation, right? So for, for my case, as one of the co-founders, of mm-hmm. course, that I'm... <laughs> I'm the main stakeholder for, for all our teams, right? So right. Our, our teams have two main stakeholders. They have our clients that are paying for our service, but they have yep. the co-founders that because yep. the service needs to be good and, and sustainable and so on. So we set the boundaries and say, look, we want you guys like as a delivery team, we need you to self-manage. But in order to self-manage, those are the things that, so we can give that support. We need to tell them, we need to explain to them because a lot of people don't have that experience. And then we need to explain the value of those things. I don't want you to use a board or a tool because I'm telling you so, but I can explain to you, look, we have someone paying for our service. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a service provider, if you're an internal team, right? So you still have someone right. paying for your service, right? So we need to know, are they happy? What are the risks? Mm-hmm. So are we providing a good return on investment? Is there continuity with to what we are doing? So, right. so that expectation needs to be set. And because as I always say, we may not need managers, but we still need management, right? right. So that needs to be done. And if the team is not doing the management, they will have a manager to do that. <laughs> they need to choose. 
Do you want to do yep. it yourselves or do you want someone because management will need to be done? Yep. No, that makes sense. Yep. Do you do you want to do it your way or do you want us want to, us to do it our way? Exactly. Bring someone to outside and then do the management for yep. you. Right. Yeah, but there are certain personalities, certain people that don't want to worry about that, right? They really do just want to get orders from somebody and then deliver them. And so, yeah, I, I think there is there are going to be personalities that will opt for if you give them the option to say, no, just have somebody come along and tell us what to do and have them be responsible for keeping track of whether or not things are going the way they are. But my personality is much more the other way. And I think there are a, a fair number of people that are that way, especially within consultancies and stuff, because you do wind up autonomous more often than not, because you, you're already dealing with somebody who's outside of the day-to-day dealings of the people in charge of the business. And so, and, and that appeals to people. So I think I could definitely see this in a consultancy and I could see it in businesses where the culture does lend itself more toward sort of the autonomous, yeah, self-management seeking people. Oh, but you know that there is a, uh, you raised an interesting point because, you know, when you talk about cross-functional teams, right? So mm-hmm. for me, cross-functional team doesn't mean a co- cross-functional people, right? So okay. for me, there's a significant distinction. There's cross-functional. You want cross-functional teams, not mm-hmm. necessarily cross-functional people. So what do I mean by that? That within the team, we need to have some individuals with, well, we need to have individuals with different skill sets. They, they overlap, they understand each other, their skill sets and stuff, but they have different skills and we should value those experts. We, what we don't want is a full team of average people. They do a bit of everything. <laughs> the, the, what is the name they're saying? The, the, the jack, uh, jack of all trades or master yeah, of Yeah, jack of It's, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean, right? So you know yeah. everything, but you don't master any of them, right? So yeah. not exactly how, how to say it in English. But like the so so this is for me is a very weak team. Having a team where everyone tries to do an every job of everything is, is the worst that you can have. So uh-huh. you can have a cross-functional teams with this specialists and some people that are more hybrid, and some of them will take the role of managing certain aspects or looking after certain aspects, the same way as someone who have more an inkling to architecture or hardcore algorithms and stuff. Someone will be far more focused on the process, on the, the cadence and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up too because I've been working on, it's probably going to launch about the same time this episode goes live, but I've kind of come up with the idea of a most valuable dev, right? Which mm-hmm. is kind of like the MVP on your team. But it is focused a lot more on this cross-functional team idea because you're not going to be the expert on everything, right? Just to give you an example, uh, I recently uh, picked up a full-time job and we have this legacy system and there's a guy on my team that's the expert in the legacy system and on groovy on grails of all things, you know, and the rest of it, we're rewriting importing parts of the app into Rails, Ruby on Rails. And so, yeah, so I'm the most valuable developer when it comes to Rails, Rails internals, you know, Rubyisms, things like that. And when we have to touch the legacy code, he kind of takes over because he's pretty darn good at that. You know, and I've seen this cross-functional idea expand to, and you have this in your list too, QA, expand to DevOps, expand to 
even stakeholders, right? Where the stakeholders are an active member of the team. And sometimes these folks are on multiple teams and sometimes they're not. Project manager is another one, but they're all part of the team and they're all responsible for the team outcome. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is why I defend some structure, some key roles. Again, accountability responsibility, but not necessarily a hierarchy. I think things go wrong when you put like the product owner to be the line manager of everyone or the architect or team. That's when things get messy. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I think we have time to dive into one more of these areas and I'm not sure because we've kind of touched on a bunch of this stuff. What about estimates or QA? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, Let's dive into estimates. Because that's something that I see a lot of teams deal with. Okay. So estimates is, is an interesting one because th- there is a, that whole, I don't know if you followed like a few years ago, there was that, that whole no estimate uh, hashtag on Twitter. There was books written about it. And some of those folks uh, in no estimate, they were, I know some of them, they were quite aggressive as well and stuff. So there is a whole trend of no estimates, but you know, I, I think we need to start from, from ourselves, right? So before, mm-hmm. for example, let before we even discuss estimates or no estimates, let's try to think about us as a paying customer, right? So, so we all pay for services, right? Being an accountant, being a hairdresser, being a, a builder or whatever, right? So we pay for a lot of, say, a dentist or whatever, right? Would we accept among all the services that we pay for to go to someone, mainly when they are expensive services, because the services from IT developers cost a lot of money. They are busy, mm-hmm. right? So, would we accept to go to someone and say, "Hey, I want your service," and this person turns back to us and say, "Yeah, sure, absolutely. I charge you this amount of money, which is a significant amount, and you keep paying me, and, and I'll tell you when I'm done." So, <laughs> I've had contracts that so looks like kind of like that before. And then it said, well, but, but, but can you just give me some estimates or, or said, I yes. don't know, like I have these, these, those are my requirements. Could you at least give me a ballpark? No, no, I don't do estimates. So oh, tell yeah. me what you want. I'll be working and I'll be done at some point. And you keep paying, right? So yeah, that's fair. They do want to know how long it's going to take. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so then, so... If that sounds like, imagine that this is your dentist telling you or your or building company that you hired to do some work in their house, right? So I believe that most of us would not be very happy with that behavior. So why would we do that to our clients, right? Because it's complicated. Yeah. You say, well, but 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 then the, the, the other question is, yeah, but like, okay, it's fair enough, but their work is more is easier to, to estimate and is more well-defined. Well, well, I won't debate that because I don't have enough knowledge, but, like, but mm-hmm. let's go back to others. If most of the times if this is true, right, there are many situations. There are situations where we have absolutely no clue whatsoever. That there's no way we can even guess, right? So mm-hmm. that is one end of the spectrum. And there are uh, the other end is like you're just doing another form on the <laughs> on the browser, and it's just another form form controller database database controller mm-hmm. form, right? So yep. So it's just another crowd and stuff. Yeah, you've done that a billion times, you know, precisely how long it's going to take, right? So those are different spectrums. And there are many things in between. So I believe that I would not accept, say, hey, I don't have a fucking glue, so I'll be working on it. But what we can <laughs> do and say, look, I don't know how long it's going to take. I have absolutely no clue. But what? why don't we do one thing? Give me two weeks. 
give me a sprint or two sprints. Mm -hmm. So given the size of the, you, you can size the word. You know if you're talking, like given what the client wants or the, the, your product owner wants, whatever. Yeah. You, you know, in your head, you know, are we talking about weeks, months, or years? So mm -hmm. that you can, if you're not even able to do that, you should review if you're in the right profession, right? So you, you should know at least <laughs> the kind of unit that you are talking right. about, right? Yep. So if you're talking about many, many weeks, many, many months, which you, with, or you, you cannot even get there, so then you can say, give me a period of time. So, you can, you can calibrate. So, for example, if it's a small thing, you say, like, time is very sensitive. Like, for example, the deadline is, I don't know, one month ahead. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I don't know, because if the deadline is a month ahead or three weeks ahead, a few days makes a huge difference. Right. right? But if, if the deadline is one year ahead, a few days makes absolutely zero difference. Mm -hmm. So, you calibrate the amount of time that you need. You say, like, okay, you know what? In the three-week example, Give me two days before I start going crazy doing something that I don't understand or, or even promise that I'm going to do something. Give me two days. And in these two days, our objective is to try to resolve all the unknowns. You're gonna, the first thing you're going to do, you're going to list all the unknowns, the known unknowns, and try <laughs> to reduce. Because, uh, of course, you never know that the, the, there are the unknown unknowns, right? So we know that. Right. But, like, there's, we cannot do magic. We can just do our best. So, so then say, like, let's take everything that is uncertain. And we are going to focus the next two days mm -hmm. or the next two sprints or the next two weeks or two months or whatever that period is. And we're going to only tackle that. You're going to, and we are going to demonstrate progress on those experiments. That's not a thing. So you don't do, it's similar to spikes, right? You don't create a task for investigation should never be unbounded. Even if you don't even know how long you need to do something, you can still time box that activity. Say, look, I need two days or X, mm -hmm. X amount of time. And the goal for me at the end of this amount of time is to answer those questions because yep. those are things that I don't know. And now you show you progress. If I'm just asking two days, I show you progress after two days. If I'm asking for two weeks, I can, after one week, I can give you say, hey, this is what I am. This is what I found out about those questions. Maybe there are new questions that I discovered. Those are the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. Right, and at the end of that period, as it should be the end of a spike, you have a list of things that you need to do. So, the, the, for me, the outcome of an, uh, an investigation task is a bunch of tasks that right. has the definition. And if you're not able to do that, then you know. So, okay, I was able to solve, let's say, three two thirds of my doubts, and I was able to create tasks to a level that I can eat, at least gives, give you an indication of time. Uh -huh. But there is still a third that either I did not have time or I discovered along the way that I still need to work on. And for that, I would like to have another amount of time to tackle them. So yep. with that, this is more manageable. Mm -hmm. so you see what I'm saying? Because you, you reduce the commute, the commitment, and you work on the uncertainties. Right. Well, and yeah. you, you <clears throat> mitigate a lot of that risk, right? Because then if you're, well, this is the two thirds I know about, well, that's going to take way too long or it's going to cost me more than I have or things like that. I can make that call right there. Exactly. And then because, and also like for me, there is a lot of diminishing returns on estimates. I'm an advocate of having estimates. I think we should mm -hmm. provide estimates as professionals providing a service. Right. But, but there is a lot of diminishing return. For example, you, Another thing that, it, the reason I say that, because we also need to understand why someone needs the estimate. 
Mm-hmm. Right? So because that's another important thing. So when you are providing an estimate, you need to understand what you are providing an estimate for. Right? So yep. most of the time, people need to understand, is this a viable project? And they need a ballpark. They need to say, like, are we talking about weeks, months, or year? Are we talking about thousands of, of pounds or dollars, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of mm-hmm. So, so what ballpark we are talking about? Because so you don't need to, because I, so the law of diminishing return for me is to go down to hour, to days. Most often than not, at high level estimates can be done quite quickly in a short period of time, as mm-hmm. long as you keep the unit of the estimates quite coarse grain. Let's say you have two week iterations, you estimate in iterations, in units of two weeks. That is good enough for most of strategic business strategic decisions. But if people are pushing you to give an hour how much work you're gonna do on a daily basis, then you can tell them to fuck off. So like like you you are not because now you're micromanaging. There's also a yeah. zero value for you to have that information. You're just gonna yeah. make something very painful and, and it makes no difference to you. Right? right. So 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 that's for me the distinction, right? Yeah estimates should be used to provide valuable information for someone to make strategic decisions. Right. Right. I love it. Absolutely love it. Now, with these estimates, how does this tie back to the self-managing teams? Do they manage their own estimates? Do they give them when they're asked? Is that kind of up to them? So they, they should. And there are, there, there are but there is, again, it goes back to the boundaries. Ah, gotcha. Of, right. So, for example, because an estimate is an estimate. It's not a commitment, as we all know. <laughs> so we can say to Jordan, you say, look, we, like, we believe after a week of investigation or two weeks, of course, that this is nowhere near enough to be very precise, but we believe that we are probably talking about six months worth of work here. Right. That's the ballpark. And you can give a range. You can say this is between five to seven months. That's what we think. Mm -hmm. This is enough information for someone to decide to go ahead or not with that stream of work, right? Business-wise. Right. So, however... You still don't know. There is a range of uncertainty in there, and mm-hmm. you still need to, to progress. But if you are able to, uh, let's say that you divide in phases. So let's say you can you can divide your project. That's where the management comes in. So you can divide your project. When there is a lot of uncertainty, you, you create milestones, let's say, or phases mm-hmm. based on time. Right. Let's say we are going to work on quarterly milestones. We are not in a position to know precisely what we're going to achieve, but let mm-hmm. us start. But we have a checkpoint in three months. Right. Right. And then as we start, we will have more. And then we do the same thing. We do an inception phase. That's what I call for each phase. So let's say that we have, we, do, we divide part-time. Those I only do part-time in, in process that there's a lot of uncertainty. We, we, is, we are experimenting. We, we, can only, we can only even create a proper backlog. Right, so right. we are really experimenting, pushing features, figuring out what you're doing. So say, okay, let's plan for the next three months only. And the first mm-hmm. week we do an inception, and we try to see what is more valuable for us to tackle in the next three months, and see if it roughly fits. And we reevaluate every two weeks, and then we see and we keep calibrating if we can bring more stuff in, or if there will be some stuff that's not going to be done. Mm-hmm. You have a checkpoint time based after three months new phase. You start again with right. the inception and say, okay, let's plan the next one. 
what fits in here. This is time-based. What you might want to do is scope-based, which is more common. There's a bunch of scope. There's a bunch of feature that the business wants to achieve. If they have, let's say, 10 very big features, you might say, look, this is too much to be a single phase because it, mm-hmm. because we are, let's say that as a gut instinct, we are talking about a year and a half for those two years for those 10 phases. 10 phase. mm-hmm. Okay, so this is way too long. So let's reduce this scope. Let's focus on three of the main features and that will be our phase now. So now it's not time-based anymore. Our goal of the phase is to finish those three large features. Right. Right. Then we need the same thing, the inception phase, but then it's focused on that scope. We try to remove all the unknowns, all the uncertainty in the inception phase. At the end of the inception phase, that might be one or two weeks. You have your first initial version of the backlog with the first idea of a range, maybe five to seven months, somewhere along those lines. And then you start iterating. And that point gets very interesting because I learned in a scope base, which is the most common, you know at the very high level what the scope is, but you don't know the details. So you do a high-level estimate. How you do that? You can do that as soon as you understand, you, you are able to figure out which tasks which tasks you have. You, you can do t-shirt size, you can do Fibonacci, you can do all uh-huh. that. And then you do the projection and you create a range from there, right? So this is not hard to do in the first iteration or, or inception phase. But as you keep moving, that initial assessment of size comparison or complexity comparison that you've done through t-shirt size or through Fibonacci, you need to reevaluate, but you need to reevaluate in two stages. So let's say that you, you went through two iterations, mm-hmm. right? So you know far more now than you knew when we... Right. So you still have a bunch of tasks left. So we, we start re, re-evaluating our estimates every two iterations, every month, for example. We, we would do a full re-evaluation. But we had to do that in two steps. Look, look how interesting this is. One is comparing complexity. So for the features that are left, mm-hmm. how much do we know about them? But how roughly, at a very high level, how do they compare to the features that we've done complexity-wise, not time, complexity-wise? Right. Why this distinction is important? Because the time that it took to build the first features during the first two iterations is not the same amount of time that's going to take to build the other ones because we the system is not in the, the same place. Right. So you need to compare complexity, but when you try to think about time, then you need to take into account the current state of the system. Mm-hmm. So then, so your estimation will now reflect the current state of the system, not now how it was a month ago. One month later, you do exactly the same thing. Whatever is left, complexity-wise, how do they compare? So you then put them in the right places. But time-wise, they might be smaller than they were before because hopefully you are building on top of something else. So right. that's how we were doing. So we were recalibrating. Why, why do they, then you can say, but why don't you just do the time-wise? Because you still need to go into more detail. So as you are reviewing those things. Right. At the beginning, I could not go into the details of everything I had. But as I progress, I can start going into more details. Like, okay, complexity-wise, how does that compare to something that I now know, right? So feature two, I've done. I know the complexity. The feature three, I haven't done it yet. So in order to have that complexity comparison, I will need to ask more questions for feature three. Right. That's when I gain more insights. If I'm not able to 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 gain more insights, we schedule a spike. 
And in that spike, we say, we are going to tackle all the things that we don't understand for those mm -hmm. next features in the next iteration. And at the end, we have a refined version of those. Nice. So, you know what I'm saying? Yep. So, so then you keep recalibrating. But you need yep. to have a business that, like the customers, paying the, the stakeholders or whoever, they need to understand that scope or time will be mm -hmm. varied as we go along. But then it's not anymore like, I'll do whatever and I'll tell you when I'm done. No, no, I'll be telling you regularly where we are and giving you a full picture according to what we know every time we do that. Right. Yeah. Given more information or more infrastructure that we were able to build or more exactly. better practices that we put into place or whatever. Yeah. Well, okay. We, we were thinking this was six months of work, but now that we've got more information, we know that these handful of things that we thought were roughly a month apiece, this one's three weeks, this other one's five weeks, this other one's two weeks. And so it looks like it's going to be this different time frame. But more yeah, refined well, you know, because we know. Happens sometimes it's like one thing that in one round of estimates, one thing was five weeks. On the second round of estimates, because we built something that this five-week feature will yep. benefit from, now it's much more. Yep. Right? yep. So, so then if you are giving that constant update, then the, the sponsors might say, you know what, for me, that's enough. We can stop this project. It's becoming too expensive. Or, you know what, now that I know more, we can switch, swap those features, or I can do that instead. And you, you keep giving them options, you know? Yep. And then they can decide, are they going to constrain budget or scope? So then they can play, mm -hmm. right? So. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Well, I think we're kind of at the end of our time. Sandro, if people want to connect with you or hire your, one of your teams or something like that, how do they get a hold of you? So my email address is uh, sandro at codurance.com. And you can reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. So Sandro Mancuso, you'll find me. And Twitter, at Sandro Mancuso, you'll find me as well. Awesome. Well, this was a terrific conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hopefully the lockdowns aren't too inconvenient out there in London. And uh, that things continue to go well for you. Cool. Thank you very much, Chuck. Always a pleasure to be in the show. So until our next one. <laughs> All right. Till our next one. Max out, folks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.